Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Our guest today is Dirk Weisenborn. Dirk is a PhD student at DFKI, the German Research Center for Artificial Intelligence, working with Hans Oskarev and Fiyu Shu. He's interested in representation learning for NLP with a focus on tasks involving reading comprehension and integration of background knowledge. Today, we're going to talk about his paper, Dynamic Integration of Background Knowledge in Neural NLU Systems. It was published in archive uh, earlier in 2017, and it was co-authored with Thomas Kosiski and Chris Dyer. So the paper proposes a method for incorporating the background knowledge related to a particular example by dynamically refining word embeddings. Could you tell us uh, a little more about uh, the motivation for doing this work, Dirk? Sure. So in order to understand the motivation about our work, we need to understand the limitations of nowadays neural architectures and how we employ them. Usually we train our models on static resources that are merely able to learn a very limited amount of facts about the world, of course. The learned knowledge is restricted to the domain of training data and thus very hard to transfer. And of course, similarly, these models will have a hard time with changing knowledge. So basically knowledge and facts that change over time, like who's the president or other entity-related facts. Although these problems can be, of course, mitigated using uh, unsupervised learning methods and online learning techniques, I believe that with techniques that we have available at the moment, this is not enough. Current unsupervised learning techniques are not sufficiently powerful at extracting abstract knowledge from unlabeled data yet. So for instance, it's uh, very hard to extract simple information about words, for example, which words are synonyms and antonyms to each other. So when we use word embeddings, for instance, the most typical form of exploiting unsupervised learning for natural language processing. Another important fact is, of course, that we also that it's also not clear how and what kind of knowledge we store when we train our models, especially when we consider that they use only a very limited amount of parameters when they are trained on supervised tasks. So how much can you really store in this very limited amount of parameters about the world? That's very limited. So I think such models do not really understand a lot about language and are not particularly good at memorizing large amounts of abstract knowledge, but they're really good at memorizing large amounts of superficial patterns. So in short, their ability to learn and store abstract knowledge is limited. In our work, we propose a very simple solution to go around that. This is to provide explicit background knowledge. So we don't try to learn background knowledge and store it in form of parameters somehow implicitly, but we just give the model the knowledge that it needs in order to solve the task at hand on the fly. Basically, what you're saying, instead of having to provide uh, parameterization for the different kinds in which the knowledge may be available, we're going to use the word embeddings as the basis for representing this knowledge. And we're going to consume the background knowledge and somehow induce this information in word embeddings. So how, what's the approach you use to operationalize this? Exactly. So, so as you already mentioned, we operationalized the approach of integrating background knowledge through the use of um, word embeddings. So we basically view word embeddings here in this work as kind of a key value store, you could say. So they are not anything else than that. So each word basically refers to some kind of embedding, which stores some form of information. Usually we think of them as being static, but now we basically make the word embeddings dynamic 
that means we integrate background knowledge, explicit background knowledge, so written text directly into the word representations before we process the task at hand. So, so this is the basic idea. How do you pick which background knowledge you're going to use? Yeah, so this is somehow task dependent, of course. So at the moment, how we solve this and the paper is depending on the task. We kind of have a heuristic that retrieves potentially relevant background knowledge. But by potentially, we mean that we kind of try to exhaustively get high recall on what might be relevant. Even if we retrieve unrelevant knowledge for the task at hand, our model should be able to just neglect it and not use it for its prediction. For example, both question answering and recognizing textual entailment, it's basically both of these tasks about two sequences of text. One is the question or the hypothesis, and the other is the context from which we should basically extract the answer or the premise for recognizing textual entailment. And we kind of just retrieve information that connects those two sequences tighter with each other. So we look for concepts that are connected in sequence one with concepts that are connected with concepts in sequence two, right? So just to be sure I'm understanding what's going on, your goal is to incorporate background knowledge that we find as written text into some kind of reasoning model. So question answering or natural language inference, textual entailment, whatever you want to call that task. And then your, your process, you have some baseline model which is, I guess, some LSTM. We can get into that a little bit more. And then you retrieve some background knowledge given the question and the passage. And that background knowledge then gets used how? What exactly do you do here? So what we do is basically we try to find a list of, as we call it in the paper, assertions. Assertions are basically simple facts about the world in written text, natural language. And once we have those, a list of those, we kind of let what we call a reading module, read that knowledge. And by reading it, it incrementally updates the word representations. So if it reads a a word in the background knowledge it is basically incorporating at the moment, it uses this occurrence of the word and like the context around it to refine its representation, its word representation based on on, on that knowledge, that piece of knowledge um, that we gave to the model. And so what you mean here is, so you have, say, an LSTM, probably a bidirectional LSTM that you're running on these textual assertions that are your background knowledge. You're taking the output of the LSTM for each word uh-huh. as your new embedding for that word. Oh, right. It's, it's not new. It's, we use that output of, for example, these um, LSTMs. Of course, now one word can occur multiple times, right, in the context that, uh, in the background piece of background knowledge that we're reading. So if we have a list of additional background information, then one concept or one word might occur multiple times. So we additionally need to pool over all the occurrences of a single word, and we cannot just update uh, or use the output of the of the LSTM as the new word embedding, but we need to pool over all occurrences of this word. And then we update by basically using a weighted addition with the old representation of the word. So by pooling, we get basically a new update candidate, and then we perform a weighted update by a weighted addition with the old representation and the new representation of the word that we basically gather by pooling over all occurrences of that of the LSTM states or whatever you use that we get from reading the background knowledge. And then what happens to this new representation? How does it get used? 
Then we have basically updated our word embedding matrix. And because most of our neural NLU models that we are using rely on the use of word embeddings, we basically just give the task model that sits on top that uses the word embeddings, the updated word embeddings, in contrast to using the fixed word embeddings that we usually use. And that's all there is. It's really kind of orthogonal to, to the task. So you just update your word embedding matrix and use the updated, as we call it, refined word embedding matrix to basically employ your task model on top. And I suppose the uh, model parameters that are used to refine the word embeddings are trained jointly with the end task. Exactly. Yeah, that's also important, right? That the models or the, the reading module is trained jointly with the task model on top. So there might be interesting ways of using this reading module to share between tasks, maybe, so that QA can share the same reading module with NLI and so on. We didn't try that yet, but um, this is a possibility as well. But as, as of now, we just use it as part of our end-to-end model for the task. So if we remove the pooling operation that you have between lemmas, uh, yes. Like if I, if I see the same word uh, in multiple background assertions and in the question or in the passage, for instance, you do this averaging pooling operation. If we mm-hmm. remove that, are you basically just adding another LSTM, another layer of LSTM on the bottom? Is that right? For example, if you would do that, then it's not possible anymore to update your word embedding matrix. But then you can also not incorporate your background knowledge as well, right? Because the pooling is what you need in order to incorporate the background knowledge. But if you think about it that way, you could say that basically, if, let's say, each word only occurs once, occurs once in your context, and you don't have any background knowledge, then it's very similar to employing basically a stacked LSTM. So having two layers of LSTMs, that's correct, yeah. Okay. Only that you have a kind of a skip connection between uh, the layers with the weighted update, but that's correct. So in the paper, you mentioned uh, two things in order to combine these uh, different, the, embed- the word embeddings and different reading steps, right? Uh, there's the max pooling and there's the gating. Could you give us some intuition on why we need this instead of taking just the last embedding? Did you try to use the last embedding? Do you think it would work? I am not sure whether I understand the question completely. What do you mean by the last embedding? Oh, sorry. After, after the word, all the context and the related background information has been consumed, we might think that like, the final product of this, the final word embedding, after uh, updating with all this information, uh, would be the one to use because it's like, the most comprehensive one. But of course, it's most affected by the most recent uh, text that you used. So mm-hmm. uh, perhaps that's why we need to do maximum. So yeah. One thing is then you're basically would do an update on the update on your word embeddings would be the same for all words. That would be one thing that's maybe not good. A second thing is that you mentioned the most comprehensive is the last state, um, which is not necessarily true because we're employing bidirectional LSTM. So at each point, you basically have information about the whole context. So at each position in the text you're reading. Sorry, I, I think I didn't make myself clear. Uh, there mm-hmm. are multiple reading steps in this approach. Uh, so first, uh, in the example which you give in the paper, first you read the premise, and then you read the hypothesis, and then you read the assertions. 
And we do max pooling here after each in order to get a representation for a particular word after at a particular ah, set. Okay. <laughs> you, instead of taking uh, max pooling or everything in parallel, is that what you? You can basically take the last representation for the word people based on the most recent reading step, which has already consumed all the previous steps. I, I, so basically, what you're saying is that we don't have to iteratively, incrementally update our embedding matrix, but just we update it once with? Um, uh, no, actually, I, um, you know, <laughs> I, I, we can probably take this offline <laughs> after, um, after the podcast. But another question I had was how to pick which, how many reading steps you use, how to design these. So in the example you gave, you you have three reading steps, and then you use uh, use embedding in the in the final task. You, I can see uh, other ways of doing it. For example, each of the assertions could be a separate reading step, or you could have combined the premise and the hypothesis because they're like the example that you're trying to uh, comprehend. Do you have any insights on what, how to choose these, uh, how to organize our reading steps in a in a given task? Right. If you, for example, let's start with the assertion. So if you would basically read each assertion individually and then read the next one, then you would impose kind of a reading order. And also you're, you would have a lot of updates on your embedding matrix. That means the distance or the depth, basically, of your network, because it's dynamically constructed, would be very, very large. And that means that information from like the first reading step would have a hard time reaching the actual task model that sits on top. So I can imagine that this would really pose problems. So we ordered basically now the reading steps. We basically said they had their different you know, types of inputs. One has basically the type premise. The other has the type hypothesis. The other has the type assertions. So that's why we chose three here. Or for question answering, it's similar question context or, or the question, the supporting context documents and the assertions. But I understand that, of course, we could basically process in parallel the premise and the hypothesis, as you mentioned, that's possible. But I think here it might be nice to read the hypothesis when you already have read the context of the premise that might give the model. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a trade-off. It might be it might help, it might not help. So that's just a design decision here. It's, I, I, I'm not sure whether it's really necessary. Uh, another possible thing to, to experiment with, to see if the order in which we present these, this information makes a difference. So if, if we first read the assertions and then read the hypothesis and read the premise, does it make any difference? I'd be curious to know if that's the case. Yeah, so we had experiments on that as well, and it didn't. So you could basically change premise hypothesis around and it didn't make a big of a difference. Um, so we just stuck with this order. But w what's basically important is that you basically tell, at least for question answering, it's more, I, I, I believe it's important to tell the model what is the question and what is the supporting document now, just for the model to know um, what it is reading at the moment, similarly for, for uh, recognizing text entertainment. So we additionally give one feature that indicates what kind of input the model is receiving at the moment. Is it receiving the premise? Is it receiving the hypothesis or the assertions? And um, this is kind of important feature for the model just to know where does this text come from? What's the source of this text? Yeah, I would guess the max pooling operation that you do 
in computer vision, the motivation for the max pooling is to give it, give the model some, uh, like a convolutional network, some kind of translation invariance. And the analogy in this setting is permutation invariance to the ordering that you're passing these things. I would expect it to be like, exactly. your, your result is very intuitive because that's what I would expect to get from a max pooling operation. Yes. So the way that you're doing this background knowledge incorporation is by updating word embeddings that get fed into your end task model. Yes. Do, do you have any intuition for what exactly this model is? Like, how is this actually using the background knowledge? Like, do you have an, some kind of explanation for what's actually going on here? Yes. Um, so that really depends. So there are some simple things that the model can extract. For example, when it's reading, for example, for question answering the question, it might simply just for each word that it reads at this particular moment, add a feature that basically says, well, this word appeared in the question. This is a very important feature that is very important for getting good results in question answering, for example, with a simple task model on top. And so those kind of task-specific features can be learned um, by the model. Other things that are going on, so we plotted this once as well, how do the embeddings change from the original to the refined ones. You basically see that the model adds kind of information that's orthogonal to the to the information that was already there in the in the unrefined word embeddings. So it's not trying to move around the semantics of the words, but it's kind of adding information in a way, background information to these models. But in general, it's really hard to say what exactly the model does. I think it really extracts some important task-specific features. If you look for at um, natural language inference, when we give the model an assertion that basically says, well, this word is the antonym of that word, then the model somehow stores this information because when we switch the assertion and say the same word is the synonym of the other word, then the model also switches the predictions to from whatever it had said before. So it can do this kind of counterfactual reasoning somehow. So it is somehow sensitive to the semantics of the information that it's presented with, but how exactly it does it is hard to say, really. I would say it's basically, it learns to store those kinds of information, like features, basically, just in the memory or, yeah. So as I was reading this paper, I thought there have been some recent papers showing that LSTMs basically, at least you, you can view a, a simplified view of them is what you're, what you're doing is representing each word as a weighted combination of the other words in, your, in the sentence, right? Which in some sense is also what Word2Vec does, but over a much larger training set and any particular uh, word pair that you might see in your Word2Vec corpus is going to be pretty diluted probably after you're averaging over like a billion words. And so what you're doing with this particular way of getting background knowledge is enhancing links between the question and the passage or the premise and the hypothesis. Exactly. That would have been there, like that you would certainly have seen these word associations in word to vec It's just may have been washed out by a large training set. And now you're forcing these word vectors to be closer together because what the LSTM is doing when it gives you the, the refined representation for people after you read the assertion people is, is a group or a, a group is another word for people or something like this. You're pushing the vector for people closer to the vector for group. And then mm -hmm. this strengthens the association between right. the premise and the hypothesis in your input. This is somehow, yes, 
this is part of the story, definitely, I would say. So what you're doing basically is you, you, you make stronger connections between your premise and the hypothesis, make it basically easier for the model to find these connections and pushing them maybe closer together somehow in your representation space. But this alone would not explain, for example, the, the example that I had before, the counterfactual reasoning. So there's a bit more going on than just uh, making things similar, because if you just make things similar, then you cannot really, uh, then you don't know really what the difference between what antonym and synonym means and, and things like that. Yep, that's a good point. So there is a bit more going on. I'm sure there is definitely, and that was also the, the initial idea of this model that you have, that you really kind of try to push those closer, but obviously that that, that cannot be all. Could you tell us more about the experimental results? Uh, so you mentioned that you experimented with two tasks, document uh, question answering and uh, textual entertainment. Could you give us like, the highlights of the results? Yeah, of course. So let me start maybe by question answering. So what we could show there basically that we got consistent improvements when basically introducing our idea by on a baseline task model that we used, which is a simple BIOSDM which does not perform that well on the document QA task by itself. But when we introduce our extension, our reading extension, it does very well, even if you don't use knowledge, even if you don't use background knowledge. So if you just give the model as what we also kind of consider background knowledge, the context of the task itself, so the question and document, it reads it and then updates. So you could now argue that, well, it's kind of having two stacked LSTM, so the model is a bit more powerful, but we test that as well. So what happens if we have our baseline models? So without the reading architecture, but using two layers of LSTMs or BIOSTMs, and the model did not improve performance. So it's not um, that we have now more parameters or more computation complexity, but it's really that our reading architecture, especially this pooling of word occurrences helps a lot. If we then add knowledge, it helps further significantly so you can really see the gains for textual entailment it's kind of similar at least for the multi-nli data set that's a more recent uh, more complex data set on snli it did help for our simple by lstm baseline model but we also would try to use our methodology with a more state-of-the-art kind of model basically enhanced um, lstm for natural language inference eSIM. And there we could not improve on SNLI. So it's basically it stayed the same with reading and with knowledge. But on multi-NLI, you can really see the differences again. So we argued in the paper as well, SNLI has a lot of peculiarities. It's really not a good test bed in general for, for our approach because the vocabulary there is very limited. The sentences are very short. The domain is very narrow. It's basically image captions and language is not complex. So, but on multi-NLI, which is much more complex, uh, we can really show improvements again. And yeah, another highlight is basically that in the low data regime, so if we remove training data and dimensionality of our model, then there the improvements get even higher. So really in low data regimes, our model or our basically refinement strategy helps even more. I didn't understand the last part. What do you mean by removing the training data? So basically, by reducing the amount of training data that we give to the model, because these data sets are very, very large. One thing we might want from, like, 
extracting background knowledge is that our models are not that data hungry anymore. And we could show that improvements are more substantial when you have a lot lower or less training data. So can, uh, can I go back to the uh, QA uh, results when you're only including the context and instead of the background knowledge? This sounds a lot like context-sensitive word embedding. So there are several previous mm -hmm. papers that try to basically to just get a better representation of the word based on the given context instead of using the same embedding everywhere. And this sounds very similar. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how this is different without yes. using the background knowledge? So, so one thing where it differs again is here that we did we do, do the pooling of a word occurrences. And the other big difference is that these other systems uh, with the contextualized word representations are pre-trained on some other resource. So this is kind of an orthogonal approach. This is kind of, you use a static model to produce you some word representation. And actually, we could also use the word representations that come out of these contextualized word representations as starting embeddings for our model. So our model basically refines embeddings on the fly, kind of, and it's basically task-specific, whereas the other one is unsupervised and, and trained unsupervised in an unsupervised fashion. Actually, I wouldn't have thought this was context-sensitive because you still have a type-level embedding matrix, right? Because the pooling that you're doing across four instances of the same word? It's only for a given example. So my understanding is that you have a different embedding for each different example in the data set. So it's sensitive to the example, not sensitive to the particular token. It's kind of sensitive to the entire context of the task, of this task instance. You could say it's in contextualized in, with respect to the to the instance of the task that you're processing, so to the entire context, whereas in contextualized word representations that are used most of the time because they don't use any pooling, it is um, rather really contextualized to this specific appearance of a token. So there are definitely some differences there. Yeah, I think that's an important difference, actually. Um, and I guess it, in the way that you're doing things, if I get a sentence like, I may have done that in May or June, I don't remember, you, the word may there, <laughs> maybe your lemmatizer figures out that these are different lemmas, but assuming it doesn't, these both instances of may there would get the same, you, you would pool across those, right? I would pool across those, but the starting representations of those two would be different because I don't start with the lemma word embeddings, I start with their real word embeddings. So then I would basically update both of these representations with the same pooled representation and it might turn out that one of them gets updated a lot and the other one not at all. It might happen that may as being the noun would up, be updated a lot because we like to update nouns and nouns are context sensitive, whereas the other may, uh, the verb or auxiliary verb won't be updated. So yes, things like that can happen with the current approach that we're taking, but the model can learn to differentiate between these. So. It seems like to me, as I read uh, papers that publish on Squad and Trivia QA kinds of models, a really key feature of these is some kind of bidirectional attention or attention matrix between the question and the passage so that you can find similar words between them. And what you're showing here is improvements over a baseline that doesn't do this. And so exactly. I, I wonder to what extent you're capturing the same information that a bidirectional kind of attention would capture. And if if your improvements would help if you, if you had a richer model to start with. 
before uh, going into this, that for the trivia QA tasks, the baseline model is even outperforming the state-of-the-art results, even without adding any of the, uh, yeah. of the proposed methods. I don't know. Like, seems like the baseline on trivia QA are not are not mature enough. I don't know. Uh, that's actually something I was wondering about. Yeah. So that's the problem with trivia QA at that time was that the kind of the way the different papers or, or, or experiments were done were not all equal. They used different amounts of context to answer it because the context that you get in Trivia QA is very large, so you have to cut something away. So there might be something going on in the pre-processing that's different in my case than in the other works. Now there was a paper that showed how to do it properly. They got really good results with that. Actually, now we will have a refined version of this paper where we also do, do it the proper way such that the Trivia QA basically results get much, much better. Yeah, so it's a bit weird, but this is something that, yeah, because of Trivia QA, that happens because of Trivia QA and people not properly using it. About the question that Matt was asking, do you think what you're doing now with the reading steps to refine the embeddings uh, resembles in any way uh, the, like, uh, the bidirectional tension? So this is a very good question. If you think about it, somehow, yes, it's kind of a hard, the, the, the max pooling operation that you're doing and integrating that back into the word representations does something similar to some form of attention. So because basically you're fusing information of different occurrences of the same word in different inputs as well, even. And by fusing these kinds of information and later reusing that fused information, you do something similar. The difference is that it's hard. So it's hard attention in a way. It's not soft. It's not computed. It's just saying, well, words, the same words or the same lemmas belong to each other, kind of. And we fuse their information. So we could say there's something similar somehow going on, only that we don't rely on a computational uh, model for doing that, but use a very straightforward pulling operation over, over lemmas. Yeah. Was that clear? Or <laughs> Yeah. I get the, uh, I don't know, looking at the ESIM results where you take a state-of-the-art model already and try to improve it with your method, it seems a lot less compelling. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. As I said, this is really, it makes also sense that it's less compelling because part of it is really exactly this, right? This mechanism. So that already kind of captures a lot of what you would also capture with with attention basically but it does it it's just as part of the model and you don't have to learn it and actually if you look at the low data regime then also for eSIM it makes a big difference because if you have not enough training data then eSIM cannot learn good attention weights but our model since it's hard and it's kind of hard coded intention it's uh, it does a much better job so yeah yeah that's an interesting point Right, so my last question about the paper is, has to do with runtime performance. Mm-hmm. How much additional time would, should we expect if we, if we need to use this approach? Right, so that, that really depends now. Um, that depends, one, on the encoder that you use for your reading module. So now here we use BIOSTMs, which are known to be quite slow. Maybe one could use something that's a bit faster, a bit more localized, like uh, CNNs. 
basically just. So that would mean that you cannot capture the whole um, context of what you're reading at a particular moment. But maybe for this approach here, it might be enough because for assertions, for example, you usually have only have four or five words. So you could also have a convolution with a with a width of four or five uh, that would capture basically everything at every position. But in general, if you say your task model is also a bi-LSTM, then you should expect around twice the runtime, right? Because you're basically having to run two bi-LSTMs plus the runtime that you need for the assertions. And that really depends on how many assertions you give to the model. But since the assertions are very small in the case of concept map, that's not that much actually that you that you lose in in, in terms of um from terms of runtime. And for eSIM, for example, the impact of course is not that big because eSIM itself is much more needs much more computation than than the, the reading module. So it depends on your task system. If your if your task system itself is very complex, then it's negligible. If your task system is very easy and very simple, then it will of course double the runtime, for instance. So I have one more question. The motivation for this paper was how do we incorporate background knowledge into our into our models, right? Yeah. How well do you think you've captured that goal? So I think that we could show that our models are able to incorporate background knowledge in a in a semantically in a semantically useful way. We have experiments uh, for like counterfactual reasoning and things like that. So that seems to work. And also empirically, we, we show that the information that you get from knowledge, ex external knowledge, um, um, helps models across different tasks. And actually, if I may tease some <laughs> improvements that we have now, not improvements, but we have another source of information that we included now for this model that will be updated soon in the paper. And this is Wikipedia itself for question answering. So what we did there basically is we try to answer a question, take the top K predictions. And for these top K predictions, we try to retrieve their corresponding Wikipedia entries. And we basically then look at the definitions in the Wikipedia, the abstracts. And our reading architecture reads the abstracts of the top K predictions and incorporates that knowledge as well. And after that, the model gets even better at, at, at question answering, especially in Trivia QA. So on Trivia QA, we really get a lot of gains by also incorporating background knowledge from Wikipedia, not just from ConceptNet. And yeah, so this is upcoming. So I think we are able to incorporate important information um, from heterogeneous sources. So yes, so I think we kind of achieved what we went out for. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. I was particularly wondering about the like the limitations of this triple store concept net. Like, can can these same methods apply to more complex kinds of background knowledge, harder kinds of questions? So yeah, I'll be really interested to see the updated version. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So short answer to that is yes, it it also works with unstructured when you incorporate unstructured as background knowledge. Yeah, I thought it was a very clever thing that you convert the knowledge base tuples to natural language. It never occurred to me that would be like an effective <laughs> way to equate uh, uh, background knowledge. But yeah, uh, glad it works. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Dirk. And well, thank you. Thanks.